Good morning. Happy New Year. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn or maybe to scroll to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And as you're finding your place in God's Word, let me just say what a joy it is to be back at Taylor's First Baptist Church. Uh, I, I love this church. I love it so much that I have come back here, even though the last time I preached here, I caught COVID. <laughs> I'm not going to out the person who gave me COVID, but patient zero is in the room right now, and, uh, and we, can, we continue to be friends despite that. But, uh, but it is a great joy to, uh, to be back here uh, with you this morning. And, you know, it, also at the beginning of a new year, that means that like most churches, you've just finished, wrapped up a, uh, a fiscal year. And so uh, I just want to thank you on behalf of North Greenville University, where I work, uh, for your partnership. Uh, we're one of your South Carolina Baptist Convention ministry partners, and we're just so thankful uh, for the way that you support us materially, for the way that uh, so many of you who are members are alums of North Greenville, many of you work at North Greenville, and we're just delighted for uh, the strategic kingdom partnership uh, between Taylor's first and the university. And the last thing I think I want to say before we read the scriptures is, how about Josh Powell? He's doing a great job, isn't he? He's a good guy. You can clap for him now because he's not here. You don't need to clap for him when he's here. He'll get the big head. But, uh, but it, it's definitely okay to clap for him uh, while he's not here. And I'm just honored to have the opportunity to, uh, to fill the pulpit today while he's blessed with a little bit of time away. If you've turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, let me invite you, if you're physically able, let's stand together in honor of God and his word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we've already had the opportunity to worship you in prayer. We're doing that now. We've had the opportunity to worship you through singing praises to your name. We've, we've done that and we'll do that again in a few minutes. But we pray now in these next few minutes that you would help us to worship you by hearing and responding to your word. Our prayer this morning is that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would help us to rightly understand them and apply them to our lives for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So I don't know about you, but I'm old enough to remember this thing called video rental stores. Do you remember video rental stores? For about 20 years, beginning in the mid-1980s through the mid-2000s, movie rental stores were a booming industry. In 2003, the high point of movie rental stores, uh, Americans rented $8.2 billion worth of movies. There were three giants in the industry, Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, and Movie Gallery. And virtually every community of at least a few thousand people had one of those chains, maybe in addition to a smaller chain or perhaps an independent store. Then everything changed with the introduction, with the introduction of Redbox. And then just a few years after Redbox, the advent of online streaming services. And between Redbox and streaming services, the rental industry was revolutionized. Today, Blockbuster, Hollywood Video and Movie Gallery, excuse me, Hollywood uh, Video and Movie Gallery are out of business. There is one Blockbuster left. It's in the city of Bend, Oregon, and it is a boutique Airbnb. You can't even rent a movie there unless you rent the Airbnb. Maybe that's appealing to someone here today. Seriously, 20 years ago, who would have imagined that there would be no more rental stores today? I mean, who even a dozen years ago would have imagined that rental stores would go the way of the dodo bird? But those stores, those companies, they had a problem. They began to confuse the reason they exist with their strategy. They became convinced that the reason they existed was to operate those stores. When in reality, the reason they existed was to make in-home movie viewing as efficient and cost-effective as possible. They confused their strategy with their reason for existence. And ultimately, they missed the boat, and that industry doesn't exist anymore because of that confusion. Tragically, 
churches sometimes get confused about this as well. It's tempting for churches sometimes to confuse their strategies with the reasons they exist or to confuse their emphases or their traditions or their initiatives, all very good things, often very helpful things with the reason that they exist. The reason the church exists, and it's really the big idea that we're going to be playing off of this morning, is the church exists to be a community of disciples who've been formed by the power of the gospel, who proclaim the gospel, and who live out the implications of the gospel together for the glory of God and the sake of the world. That's the why of the church. And what I want to do this morning is spend some time together on this first Sunday of the new year, looking at this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, and consider two priorities that get us there. Two priorities of gospel-centered churches. The first priority comes directly from the text, verses 18 through 25, gospel-centered churches proclaim the right message. Gospel-centered churches proclaim the right message. In verse 18, Paul refers to the word of the cross. And we know that this is just another way of talking about the gospel. This is one of the reasons we know that. If we were to turn to the back of 1 Corinthians, to chapter 15. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I just want you to listen. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul gives probably the most famous summary of the gospel that we find in all of Scripture. And this is what he says the gospel is. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When Paul talks about the cross, what he means is the gospel. The good news of the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he tells us that people respond to this word of the cross in two different ways. And there's no big surprise here. Continuing in verse 18, he says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then in verse 19, he cites a promise from the book of Isaiah. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then in verse 20, Paul gives us some examples of the type of people who are perishing, of those whose discernment God is thwarting. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In these verses, Paul is reminding us of something that we probably already know, 
And that is that the gospel is the truth that fuels our salvation, but it's also a message that often seems foolish, silly, to those who've not yet believed. I think we know that even from our own experience. But then in verse 21, he gives us a glimpse into God's purposes in all of this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now we know that the ancient city of Corinth loved wisdom. They loved eloquence. They loved philosophy. In fact, if we were to look back at the previous passage before the one that we're highlighting today in uh, verses 10 through 17, we learned that even the believers in Corinth were divided into different factions based upon who their favorite preacher was. This is a city that valued these sorts of things. But we find out from Paul that God isn't concerned with how the world might think about wisdom at any given moment. He doesn't save people through that. He saves people through the preaching of the cross, through the gospel, which often seems like foolishness to the world that values wisdom. He reaches the culmination of this argument in verses 22, 23, and 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In many ways, our world today is not that different from the world of the Corinthian church. We have our own version of Jews who are seeking signs or Greeks who are seeking wisdom and, 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 and those disordered seekings, if you will, prevent them from, uh, from hearing and believing the gospel. Oh God, you seem great. I want to believe in you, but I'm suffering. I just can't believe in a God who won't take away my suffering. Oh God, I, I want to believe in you. I think you're probably out there somewhere, but I can't trust a God who won't dig me out of this financial hole, preferably by winning the lottery. Or what about seeking wisdom? God, you're probably out there but I'm not gonna pull the trigger on believing in you until I can reconcile you with what I think my test tube is telling me. God, I, I'm, it's not that I'm not religious, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe interested in believing, but only if I can fit you into the box of what I learned in my philosophy course whenever I was at the community college. Now listen, Paul's point here is not that there's no place for miracles or even philosophy. Paul performed miracles. Paul was an expert in Greek philosophy. He's not denigrating those things. What he's saying is they're not the pathway to God. The pathway to God is Christ crucified. 
You know, in many ways we're like them, but in some ways we're not like them. Let me give you a way that we're not like them. If you're like me and you've spent most of your life in church, when you hear the phrase Christ crucified, it just sounds normal. It's church language. We know what it's talking about. But if we were to go back and we were to put ourselves in the shoes of these first century Jews and Gentiles, and especially the Jews, that phrase, Christ crucified, it's shocking. It doesn't make sense to first century ears. It, it's two ideas that don't compute. It's, it's like a tone-deaf opera singer. It's like a penniless rich man. It's like a humble Clemson fan. <laughs> two ideas that just simply cannot be reconciled. Crucifixion wasn't a topic of polite conversation in the first century. The great Roman statesman Cicero said the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his ears, his eyes. It's not decent to talk about. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14 says that a day will come when the Lord of hosts will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to Israel. The Gentiles, it's just folly to them. It's foolishness. It's redonkulous to think that Christ crucified is the pathway to God. But to those who were called, this gospel is the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. The word of the cross is a saving word for those who have ears to hear. God's ways may not make sense to the fallen world, but verse 25 reminds us, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brothers and sisters, God knows exactly what he's doing. He's got this under control. He knows what we need to be saved. The good news of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified is the core confession of the Christian faith. It's at the heart of our identity as individual followers of Christ. And I would submit to you this morning that it should be at the heart of your identity as a church. Yes, you're a Bible-believing church. Yes, you're a Baptist church. Yes, you're an evangelical church. But you're a church that's gathered around the word of the cross. A cruciformed people. It's the gospel shapes who you are. Beginning of the year is always a good time to ask ourselves some diagnostic questions. So I want to ask you some diagnostic questions this morning. Is the gospel of Christ crucified defining your Christian walk? Is it what motivates you to love God and love neighbor or are you more interested in tradition or habit or family or ritual 
or your team or the praise of other people or anything else in the world besides the word of the cross. Many of those are good things, but our hope isn't built on those things. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or let me ask another question. Are there ways, even if, if, if the word of the cross is, is your greatest love, it's the thing that motivates you every day, even if that's true, are there ways, maybe even unintentionally, that you're working against that word of the cross being central to who you are as Taylor's First Baptist Church? Are you a gossip who's spreading rumors about a brother or sister in this church? Or do you maybe hold a grudge against a fellow church member? Are you rebelling against your pastor and staff, whether overtly or far more common as I've seen in Baptist churches, passive aggressively? Do you care more about a theological system or a denominational tradition than the gospel itself? Do you just care more about your personal preferences and priorities, the stuff you like, more than you do the unity of this community of disciples? Brothers and sisters, the beginning of a new year is the perfect time to examine ourselves, to uproot whatever idols might have taken root in our hearts, to put our sins to death with the help of the Holy Spirit, to celebrate the God-given joyous diversity in a church this size, and to know and be known within this body. When you do that, you're playing your part in making Taylor's First a gospel-centered church that proclaims the right message and that lives out the implications of that message. And that's the first priority that we see. But there's a second priority this morning in the text. Not only do gospel-centered churches proclaim the right message, gospel-centered churches place their confidence in the right person. Gospel-centered churches place their confidence in the right person. Paul told us in the previous section that the world didn't think very highly of the gospel. And in case you were wondering, he's now going to tell us they don't like us either. It's not just the gospel. Believers don't fare much better. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Most of their church was nothing really to brag about as far as the world was concerned. In a city like Corinth that greatly valued wisdom and eloquence and, and philosophical knowledge, common sense might would suggest that a church filled with a bunch of nobodies and commoners and day laborers would have had a hard time reaching their community. In fact, I'm convinced that if Paul was the sort of religious leader that the world tends to celebrate today, he would have told the Corinth church that if they're going to reach their city, they need to be more culturally savvy. 
They need to stop emphasizing that bloody cross. What a, what a downer. They need to downplay the exclusivity of Christ. People want inclusivity, not exclusivity. They need to get on the right side of history when it comes to gender and sexuality. Aren't you, aren't you online? Don't you see where things are going? But thankfully, that's not the approach that Paul took, was it? In verse 27 and 28, he tells us that God has a different strategy for advancing the gospel, not one of cultural accommodation, but rather God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Friends, God operates in exactly the opposite way that the Corinthians were predisposed to think. He doesn't use somebodies, he uses nobodies. He doesn't use the respected, he uses the despised. He doesn't use the mighty, he uses the lowly. And that's not just true here. Have you ever noticed in scripture how much God loves to do this sort of thing? He loves to do this sort of thing. He used Gideon and 300 men to defeat the mighty Amalekites. He used young David to slay the mighty giant Goliath. He used fishermen and even tax collectors to build his church. He used a craftsman with no place to lay his head to be the savior of the world. Matthew 19.30 captures it well. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. God loves to do this. He loves to do it. And why does he love to do it? Why is this the way God does things? I think Paul tells us in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God does things his way to keep us humble, to remind us that he's the one who's doing it and not us. We're not to take pride in our own gifts and talents and accomplishments and reputations. Those may all be virtuous things. They often are for believers, but that's not what we take our pride in. He tells us what we can boast in, in verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, there is nothing inherently special about Christians. Even Christians who really are wise, even believers who really are gifted, even believers who really do have uh, positions of influence in the culture. Praise God for all that. But it's only because of God's love toward us that we're united with Christ by grace through faith and that we share in his victory over sin and death. 
We don't need to be overly concerned with the wisdom of the world because Christ has become the wisdom of God to us. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who will continue to save us. He's the one who will ultimately save us at the last day. Not our wisdom, not our gifts, not our talents, not our opportunities, not our influence. And our response is always, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I don't know about you, but in my experience, most churches I've seen struggle when it comes to boasting only in the Lord. If we opened the floor for the next 30 minutes for people to stand up and share testimonies about what Taylor's first means to them, it'd be a great time. Many of you have stories about how this church has changed your life, made you a better husband or wife or child, made you a better worker, helped you to love Jesus more. Praise God for that. That's the way it ought to be. But even in a church like Taylor's first, you have to guard your heart against the temptation to believe that you somehow deserve all the blessings God's given you. That you've got it figured out. That you've arrived. That you've nailed it. Churches are always going to be tempted to think that they've almost got it all together. They're just one program away one initiative away, the right staff hire away. Every church is tempted to place their confidence in themselves, even if they don't realize it's happening, even if all along the way they're saying, it's only by the grace of God that this is happening. But brothers and sisters, don't give in to this temptation. You're a great church, but that's because of God. That's because of his gospel and its legacy in this community of disciples. Your confidence can't be in your gifted lead pastor or your very talented musicians or your track record of orthodox theology or your commitment to conservative moral convictions or your financial generosity or your storied history as a church. Praise God for all of those things but your confidence must ever remain in the Lord and in him alone. Those good things are his gifts and they are grace gifts. You don't have them by right. That's God lavishing his grace on your church for his glory and for the sake of the gospel. If you're faithful as a church to proclaiming the word of the cross while boasting only in the Lord, putting your confidence only in him, then he'll be faithful to make tailors first into the gospel-centered church that he wants you to be. So what are some ways this morning that we can practically apply the truths that we see in this passage? Before we talk about that, I think confession is good for the soul so let's get this out of the way and let's confess up front that none of what we're talking about happens naturally. Churches don't drift into being gospel-centered. 
We never coast into faithfulness. We only drift in one direction. We drift away from faithfulness and ultimately away from fruitfulness. So this is something you have to be diligent about. You have to be committed to it. And I think for your church, it's not a first-time commitment. I think it's recommitting to who you really are for the glory of God in 2022. In fact, I think that there are three recommitments that you need to make if 2022 is going to be a gospel-centered year for Taylor's First. The first recommitment is getting the gospel right. Getting the gospel right. Brothers and sisters, there is enormous pressure for believers to downplay the gospel because it still sounds like foolishness to some people. It is still a stumbling block to many, and it is considered, frankly, offensive by a growing number of people in our culture, especially many of the most influential people in our culture. And this is even true in places like Greenville County, where you can throw a rock on any street corner and hit some sort of evangelical congregation. It's not getting harder to hold to the truth. I mean, excuse me, it's not getting easier to hold to the truth. The pressure is to capitulate. So pray that God would give your pastors the wisdom to guard the gospel from error and to labor hard to make sure that the word of the cross permeates your church's vision, guides your strategy, and saturates your teaching ministry, and encourage them in that work. Hold them accountable. Encourage them and submit to their leadership every time the Bible's open and they have a valid, thus saith the Lord. Get the gospel right. You're already pretty good at that. Not only do you need to recommit to getting the gospel right, however, you also need to recommit to getting the gospel in. And sometimes this is harder than getting the gospel right. Brothers and sisters, you will never outgrow the gospel. We don't outgrow the gospel. We just grow deeper into the gospel. The gospel is not just the foundation of the Christian life. It's the whole structure. The gospel isn't just elementary truths of the faith. It's the entire school system. This coming year, I want to encourage you to be deliberate in turning your everyday conversations among each other into occasions to reflect on the good news of God's grace in your lives. Remind each other of the gospel. Encourage one another in the pursuit of holiness and spiritual maturity. When you talk to other members of this church, ask them what they've been praying about. Ask them what they've been reading in the scriptures. Ask them if there are any other helpful godly books that they've been reading. Encourage them in their personal evangelism. Encourage them in their daily battle against sin. And receive that encouragement from them. The author, the author Jerry Bridges, talks about what he calls preaching the gospel to yourself every day. 
And I love that language. We should preach the gospel to ourselves every day, not because we need to get saved again, but because we need to be reminded every day who we are and whose we are. And it's the gospel that reminds us of where we've been, where we are by God's grace, and where we'll get one day by God's future grace. Preach the gospel to yourself and get the gospel in. If if you're looking for encouragement about getting the gospel in, consider your Wednesday night Bible study where your lead pastor is teaching the gospel from the book of Genesis or consider getting plugged into a life group. Major reason life groups exist is to help you to get the gospel in and to do it together in community. Get the gospel right. Get the gospel in. Finally, the third recommitment is to get the gospel out. See how easy that is to remember today? Get it right, get it in, get it out. There are over 525,000 people in Greenville County. Check this out. 40% of them don't claim to be a Christian. And let's be honest, guys. That's not counting the loads of them that claim to be Christians that aren't. The reality is the vast majority of people around us are spiritually lost. They are on their way to hell because they have never trusted in Jesus Christ as their King and Savior. So ask yourself at the start of 2022, both as individuals and corporately as a church, are you committed to sharing the word of the cross with others this year? Evangelism is scary. I have never one time in my life shared the gospel that I wasn't at least a little bit scared about it. But here's the bottom line. First, God does the saving, not us. I'm not responsible to get people saved. I'm just responsible to tell them how to be saved. And secondly, we talk about the stuff we care about. Some of you got Christmas gifts that you really like and that's all you're talking about. My kids, all they're talking about is Nintendo. We talk about the stuff that we're excited about. And if we're talking about Jesus all the time, it's gonna be much easier to have those evangelistic conversations when we talk about what we care about. Share the gospel with your children. Share them with your grandchildren. Share the gospel with your neighbors. Tell your coworkers about Jesus. Tell your friends about Jesus. And yes, sometimes even tell total strangers about Jesus. Talk about what you care about. And don't just do it here. Do it everywhere God opens up a door. At some point in the next couple of months, the world population is gonna pass, surpass eight billion people. The vast majority of them do not know Jesus Christ as their king and savior. Your church has a rich missions legacy. But ask yourself today, how can you, as an individual, as a family, be more faithful this year in praying for, giving toward, and participating in gospel advance in other places that are underreached and underserved by a gospel witness? 
there's a place right out here in your church welcome center where you can sign up for a mission trip this year. You have two more weeks that you can sign up. Some of you ought to prayerfully not leave today before you put your yes on the table and go and tell people about Jesus, not just down the road, but somewhere far away that maybe you never thought you'd go. This is the year. Get the gospel right. Get the gospel in. Get the gospel out. This is what it means to be a gospel-centered church. Let me give one more word of application. Some of you are here today, and maybe it's the case for you that you've never believed the gospel, that you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your personal Lord and Savior. Your application today is to just believe. Just believe. Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life that every one of us are commanded to live and never will. And he died the horrible sinner's death that every one of us deserve to die, but don't have to. And he was resurrected into the eternal life of flourishing that is intended for every one of us. And friend, this morning, if you would turn from your sin and trust him alone as your Lord and Savior, he will forgive you of your sin. He will adopt you into his spiritual family. He will give you eternal life and you will begin to become the person that he created you to be. Won't you believe the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness and your grace and we're thankful for this good news and thankful for the way that it not only changes lives, but for the way that it has shaped and by your grace will continue to shape the identity of this church. And we pray that 2022 would be a year of gospel-centered faithfulness. Lord, help us to be gospel-centered as individuals. Help us to be gospel-centered in our families. And Lord, I pray that this community of disciples would be gospel-centered in their priorities as a church. Help them to get the gospel right. Help them to get the gospel in and help them to get the gospel out by your grace and for your glory. And we pray that these next few moments would be time for us to reflect on that and to respond in obedience to however your Holy Spirit is leading us to do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.